You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. A sermon from our series entitled Walk by Faith. For more information, visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to be here with you. Hope you're doing well. Um, If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Clint Ware. I am one of the guys on staff here at the church. And my first official day on staff was back on June 1st. And uh, my wife and I are in the process of transitioning down here. I mentioned this last time I was here and asked for your prayers. Just wanted to update you real quickly before we jump into this text that my wife and I are under contract on our house in Athens. And we're, uh, yeah, I guess you could applause if you want to, yeah. And we're actually under contract on a house here in town as well. So our hope is to be down here full-time by the end of uh, July or maybe even early August at the latest. And so we're eager for that. I know personally for me, the commute from Athens is not ideal. Like, we, I left at like 3.30 this morning. I'm, I'm kidding. I did it. That would have been brutal. I was up at 3.30, though, because I have a two-and-a-half-month-old. So I am really tired, but we're going to get through this together. Anyways, uh, I just want to thank you for your prayers and that, and I really can feel them. The process so far has been really smooth, and so... Uh, I know that is because God is at work and through it. And just want to ask if you feel led, if you continue to pray for us as we make our way down here. No one pulls out last minute or anything that kind of stuff happens. I know that can happen, and so we're hopeful that it won't. Um, All right, if you have your Bible, you can open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can open on your phone or uh, however it is that you want to read God's Word this morning. If you've been here with us the past few weeks, you might be noticing a pattern. You're like, hey, didn't we do Hebrews 11 last week? Didn't we do it the week before? Are we here again? Actually, yes, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 11 all summer in a series uh, that we're calling Walk by Faith. And the reason we're calling it Walk by Faith um, is because that's what Hebrews 11 is. It's really this long list of men and women who lived their lives in faith and so lived their lives in such a way that their faith in God was evident. And so my hope, our hope this morning, uh, or not this morning, but for our church this summer, is that as we spend some time together thinking and considering uh, what faith looked like in the lives of these men and women who come before us, that God would help us. As we look at that, that God would help us grow in our own faith. As we spend time this summer in Hebrews 11, that we would grow in our own faith. That he would help us become a people who our faith in God means something for us that goes deeper than just Sunday morning. That our faith in God would be evident really in every crack and crevice of our lives. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, my hope, my prayer is that God would move us down the line, away from our doubts. And I want us to be honest this morning, because the goal, I know know the temptation to to pretty yourself up, however, metaphorically, physically, whatever, you come to church on Sunday morning and go, you have to pretend you don't have any problems, and pretend you don't doubt, you never struggle thinking about the the reality of God and and the work of Christ on your behalf, or whatever that might be. I want us to be honest about our doubts and ask the Holy Spirit of God this summer, and even this morning, that he would move us down the line, away from those doubts and into a more holistic and uh, deeper trust uh, of who God is, even if it's just a little bit. Uh, this last Friday was the official uh, first day of summer. Surprise, right? You knew that. You came here this morning. It was like, I got here at 8.30 this morning. I was already kind of melting. But um, I love new seasons because of the way I'm wired. So the way that I'm wired is that I like new seasons because for me, it means new opportunities, right? New goals to set, new things to accomplish, new things to get excited about. And it's also a time to look back on a season that's just passed. So I can, I can uh, kind of look and see what were the things I accomplished, what were the things I didn't accomplish, and kind of uh, self-assess in those ways. And that's kind of what this summer is for us. I think as we enter into this season together of summer, we have an opportunity. I know a lot of you will be in and out. Summer is, is really difficult to be uh, uh, conti- consistent at church. But as we work through Hebrews 11 together, as I was thinking about this summer, this series, I had the thought, what if when Labor Day comes or 
kids go back to school or you go back to school or whatever, when the summer is over, what if on that day we could look back and go confidently say, man, I know and trust Jesus more today than I did on June 24th. Like, how different would our church be? How different would our lives be, our homes be, our workplaces be? How different would this city be, potentially, if we could confidently say that because of what God did as we gathered together expectantly, opening Hebrews 11, looking at people who lived their lives by faith and asking God to move us down the line, how different could this city be? That's the way that I'm praying for us this summer, that God would help us to learn to walk by faith. If you are here with us last week, you know that our our middle school uh, director, RJ, uh, talked to us about a faith of a guy named Abel. And so today we're going to talk about a faith of a guy named Enoch, super obscure Old Testament guy. Um, If you didn't know who Enoch was before showing up today, you're in good company. Many of us probably didn't. So before we jump into this text, what I want to do is is help give us a category to think about faith. Because chances are, since this is Sunday morning and this is the South and you're at church, right, chances are you know what faith is. You're probably going, I don't need all summer through Hebrews 11. Like, I I understand what faith is. And and the, the reality is that may be true. Most of us probably do have a working definition of faith. Like if it was a multiple choice question or even fill in the blank, you could get it right. Most of us would probably go as far to say that faith is not just something we know what it is, but it's something we have, that we have faith. But the reality is that if we look at our lives objectively, there is very little evidence that says that that's true about us, that we actually have a faith like the Bible teaches So what I want to do is try to remove this idea of faith from kind of this Sunday morning, like Christian platitude kind of space and help us think about faith that can be a part of our lives, not just on Sunday morning, but also on Monday morning. When you kind of, you're scurrying around, you get the kids ready, you get showered, whatever, you get to work and you sit down, it's like, where is your faith there? What about on the way when someone cuts you off in traffic? What about Friday night? That our faith would be present really in every aspect of our lives. So the way I want to try to help us with this is to give us two ways that we think about faith wrong. I think there's two kind of primary lanes that we think about faith the wrong way. Despite all our knowledge of what faith is, we have a tendency to get it wrong. And here's the first one. One of the primary ways we get faith wrong is this. We have a faith that tries to make ourselves bigger than God. So the first category I want you to think about is that you have a faith that makes God small and makes you big. And here's an example of how that plays out. I mentioned this the first time that I preached here back in April, but for the first four years of my marriage, my wife and I struggled to get pregnant. So before I talk any more about that, I just wanna say, uh, I had a conversation with a, with a lady uh, afterwards um, who's walking in a similar season. I just wanna say, man, if you're in a space of infertility, that you and your wife, you and your spouse have longed for a child, or maybe even you're single and you long to be married, or what, whatever it might be, if you're in a place of asking God for something, and it's a good thing, and it's a right thing, and you don't know why, I just wanna say I'm sorry. And this is just a difficult season to walk through. I just want to know that you're not alone in that and that you don't have to pretend that you're okay if you're not. Find someone, talk to them with it, have a conversation about that. I'd love to have that conversation with you. So anyway, my wife and I struggled for the first four years to get married, or to get married, to get pregnant, and for, <laughs> dang it. That's what you're going to walk away with. Bill's going to come up like, hey, how do you do? It's like, well, he misspoke of several times. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't, not that you guys talk that way. That's not you at all. Uh, dang it okay first four years of our marriage we struggled with infertility and to put my cards on the table man it was a really 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 difficult season it really was it was harder than I anticipated it would be I I never really had a a category for how hard marriage would be in general but that we would walk through something that difficult for the first four years is just incredibly challenging and by God's grace and because of his 
because of how good and how kind he is to us, man, God answered our prayers. We have two little boys. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old little boy. I have a two-and-a-half-month-old little boy. Again, while I was up at 3.30, and I prayed for that. I asked God for that. Um, <laughs> he answered those prayers, but here's the thing about it, man. That wound is still tender. God said yes. He answered our prayers, but the reality of the fact is the wound that those four years left in my life and the, the, the life of my heart or my wife's heart is, is still a little tender. And the reason why I share this with you this morning is because I cannot tell you how many times well-meaning people, most of them Christians, would come to us and they'd hear about how we're struggling and hear about how we're asking God and he's not answering yes. And what they would do is they would come to us and they'd say, hey, you don't need to worry about it. What you need to do is have faith. Have faith. It's going to work out in the end. And you probably... Someone maybe said that, something like that to you. Maybe you've said something like that to someone else. And even if you have, it isn't necessarily wrong, but there is a huge distinction that has to be made, and this is where we get faith wrong. Because most of the folks who said that type of thing to us, they didn't mean that what we needed was to grow in our trust of the sovereign God of the universe. It didn't mean that we needed to deepen our faith and who God is and what he's done and that he had a good plan for our lives. What they meant was if we would just be patient, life would work out the way we wanted it to, right? And the problem with that is that it's just not true because life does not always work out the way we want. I still have close friends who prayed with me through tears for years, and I prayed with them through tears for years for a child, and for whatever reason, God answered our prayer, yes, and he hasn't answered it yet for them, right? I, I know those people, and, and the hard truth is it may never happen for them. I hope it does. I pray that it does, but my guess is every single time someone says to them, hey, just have faith, It'll work out. My guess is in every single time, it feels about like it did for us. Not helpful. So Hebrews chapter 11 says this, starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not yet seen. And this is a distinction that needs to be made about faith, that it isn't a false sense of hope that things are going to work out in the end. Right? Our faith has to be bigger than that. More specifically, the object of our faith has to be bigger than that. And this is the argument Hebrews 11 is making. Look at verse 2. For by it, for by faith, the people of old, they received their commendation. They received their acceptance, their approval from God. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made of things that are visible. What he's saying here is that the people of old received their approval, their accommodation from God by their faith. Not by the way they lived, not by how obedient they were. They, they received their approval from God because of their faith. And he's saying here that our hope isn't just blind, our faith isn't just blind hope that things are going to work out, but rather faith is this. He said that we understand that God is the one who created the universe, that he is the one who's in control, not us. So for us, if we're thinking about walking by faith, what that means is that our hope in this life is in a sovereign God who is in complete control of every square inch of creation, a God who isn't necessarily going to give us everything we want, but who will give us everything we need. He's promised us that, and this God, our God, has made good on that promise in Jesus. Right? So by all means, when you encounter someone who's hurting, when someone's hurting around you, they're hoping for something so much, longing for something for so long that their knees are raw for pleading with God that, they would give them, that he would give them the longings of their heart. You can look at them confidently and say, hey, you should have faith that it's going to work out in the end, but not because God's necessarily going to give them what they're asking because he may not, but because what he has given them is more than they will ever need in Christ. His grace is sufficient for us when prayers are answered yes, and when prayers are answered, no. So most of us tend to get faith wrong because the God that we believe in is a God who exists for us. 
We make God small. Our faith makes God small. He's a God who exists for us, one who is some sort of cosmic butler who is supposed to answer our every call, but in reality, it's supposed to be the other way around. That genuine faith in God shouldn't make us feel big. In fact, it should make us feel incredibly small. Like if you think about Psalm 8 where King David is looking up at the sky and he says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He's saying when I think about how you are the one who placed every star, he says this, what is man? That is his response. Right? He's looking at the sky, he says, what is man? This is what faith produces. You can almost feel what he's feeling as he looks up at the sky. And many of us have been in similar situations when you take in the beauty and the grandeur of creation, whatever that may be for you, on a mountaintop or on a beach or whatever it is, and you just feel small. Like, God is big. But if you know Psalm 8, you know it doesn't stop there. He feels small, but he doesn't feel insignificant. What's he say? He says, when I look at the, the heavens, the stars which you have set in place, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care about him. And this is biblical faith. It is a belief that God is big and that we are small, that he is creator and he is sovereign. And when life is good and he is sovereign, when life is, is more difficult than we ever thought it could be. We don't want to try to get God off the hook when life isn't going the way we want it. Faith means that we live our lives through this lens, that we are not the point and God is. And so if you feel weird about that right now, I need to clarify for you here because what David just said isn't that you don't matter. God being the point and you not being the point doesn't mean you don't matter. David just said God cares. He just said that God is mindful of us. This means the Bible teaches that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to set his love and affection, his attention and his care on you. You matter. Walking by faith means that we live our lives shaped by this truth that our God, our faith is in a God who is in control who, and, a, and a God who knows what he's doing, who doesn't drive an ambulance even when we don't understand it. That God is in control. Faith means that God is in control on year two and year three and even in year four for me when I'm asking God, why don't you give us a child? Faith is trusting God in those moments and in those spaces. So the first way we get faith wrong is that we, we have a faith in a God who exists for us. We try to make God small by our faith. And then here's another way that we get faith wrong. And this is actually going to bring us to our guy Enoch here in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found. They couldn't find him because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So to be honest here, the fact that Enoch makes this list of kind of the roll call of faith is pretty interesting. So later this summer, we're going to talk about guys like Noah and Moses and Abraham. And it makes sense that those guys are, are in this list. But Enoch is actually one of the more mysterious characters in the Bible. Really, all we know about him is from this passage of Scripture and then from three verses in Genesis 5. And he'll be on the screen, and I'm going to read this for you. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's what we know about this guy. But for some reason, the author of Hebrews goes, this is what faith looks like, and so we're going to look at his life. Here's what we know about him. Enoch lived on the earth before the flood. All right, so before God, the Bible says that God destroyed the earth by flood because of the wickedness, because of the corruption, which translation for Enoch means he lived his entire life surrounded by people who wanted nothing to do with God, and he lived in a time in history where people lived to be incredibly old. 
All right, that's what we know about him. Genesis 5 says that when Enoch was 65, right around the time he was qualifying for reduced coffee at McDonald's, he had a son named Methuselah, okay? And so that is just not a gift to your offsprings. Like, I, I've named dogs before. Not hard to name dogs. It's tough to name humans. Let's just stay away from the name Methuselah. But if you remember your Bible trivia days, this is like one of the, 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 the go-to for every youth pastor, the go-to Bible trivia question. What's the oldest man in, who's ever lived? Methuselah, how old was he? 969. That's right. So maybe you're thinking right now, 969 sounds awesome. Like, think about all the things you would experience, all the things that you would know, and just like how wise you would be, and all the things that you would get to do. You might think 969 sounds awesome. I'm going to disagree with you. And here's why. Next month, I turned 31 years old. Not an old man, okay? I kid you not, right now, I have a torn meniscus in my right knee that I have to have repaired before I can do anything fun again, and, and it didn't happen doing anything cool, okay? I have to have, it, have, to have surgery. It wasn't like I put a good move on a guy and then dunked on him and then came down on his foot and then blew my knee out, because that would be a great story. Let me tell you how I blew my knee out. <laughs> I was under my house, in the crawl space, changing the air filter. <laughs> I'm 31 years old, not even 31 years old, and I blew my knee out changing an air filter. Like, 969 doesn't sound good, okay? Yesterday morning, I'm not lying, I tweaked my back putting on a t-shirt. <laughs> like, how is, is, you know, 969 is not going to be a good time. Another thing we see in Genesis 5, right before that, is that Enoch's father, his name was Jared, and he lived to be 962 years old. Okay, so your dad's 962, your son, your first son is 969. Can we agree? That is a strong genetic line, okay? Like, they have some good stuff. And, and so when you read this, you see that Enoch only lived to be 365 years old. So you're like, what happened? Like, it's like Enoch, to me, he got gypped. Okay, because that would almost be like if your dad was LeBron and then you turned out to be 5'6 with no dominant hand. That's what, that's what it's like. Or like your mom is Whitney Houston, but when you sing, it sounds like me. You know, like you would just get gypped. But what the Bible says is that Enoch didn't get gypped. So it says that after he fathered Methuselah at 65, he walked with God for 300 years and then he was taken by God. Okay, so here's what happens in passages like this in the Bible that we don't really have a category for. Because right now you're going, what the heck does it mean to be taken by God, right? We get stuck in these passages trying to figure out what does it mean that God took him? How did that happen? Is that like a Liam Neeson movie? Like, did he, did he take him in that way? Or do we need Liam to come get him back? I don't know. The reality is we aren't quite sure what happened to him. This is all we know. Um, the only other place in the Bible that something like this happens, it was to Elijah, right? In 2 Kings 2, and, and in that situation, we do have more details. Here's what happened. Elijah's there, and then all of a sudden, chariots of fire and horses show up. Fiery horses and chariots show up all around him, and then God sends what the Bible calls a whirlwind, which is functionally just a tornado, and it just sucks him up. Maybe that's what happened to Enoch. We don't know. Maybe he melted in Savannah. We don't understand <laughs> what happened to him. Um, but the reality is we don't know, right? We get stuck on things like that, on things that we aren't clear on, and then it keeps us from seeing the things that we are clear on. Here's what's clear in this passage of Scripture. Something happened to Enoch when he was 65. Something happened in his life that a transformation took place, right, in his life. So for the first 65 years of his life, he lived one way, and then the second chapter of his life starts, the Bible says that he began to walk with God. And so this phrase, walk with God, it's a lot different than we would use the phrase. It's not just like he physically went on a walk with God. It kind of has this idea of this intimate relationship with someone. One of the uh, commentators I read said this phrase, walk with God, it means to bring a smile to someone's face, 
So Enoch, for 65 years, did not walk with God, did not please God. This is where the author of Hebrews is getting this, Enoch pleased God, is because he walked with him. And then after that, he, for 300 years, walked with God. And so the question that we have to answer today is what happened in Enoch? What happened to him? What caused this change in him? Okay, so this isn't in the Bible. We do know that he had a son named Methuselah, but, but this part is just my opinion. I think maybe this is just the season of life that I'm in personally, but is there anything that changes you more than raising babies, right? That Enoch is just going about his life. He's like, I got this. Enoch is the businessman, the entrepreneur. He's crushing it in every aspect of his life. He's single. He's just going for his stuff, and he's just a machine. Like, he's crushing it, and then all of a sudden, here comes Methuselah. Here comes this little boy that he is now responsible for, that he has to take care of, and in that moment, Enoch knows this is not something I can do on my own. I am not in control. I cannot handle this. Or maybe it wasn't that, right? Maybe he's just holding this baby boy for the first time in his arms, and he looks down, and he thinks to himself, man, maybe I was wrong about this whole God thing. Maybe I was wrong. And so whatever it was, right about the time that Enoch was born, or sorry, uh, Enoch became a father, something changed for him. He started living not just to please himself, but he began living for God, living to please God. So here's the question that I want you to answer for yourself, and this is a moment where I just want you to be honest with yourself, all right? Right now, would you say that your life pleases God? Like, do you live the type of life that brings a smile to the face of God? So whether you answer yes or no, uh, I don't need you to tell me, but my guess is most of us answer no, but what I'm more interested in is why. Like, why do you answer yes, my life pleases God, or why are you answering no, my life does not please God? And chances are, it has something to do with our external moral actions. Right, chances are, this is, it, it, this is the connection, kind of what we believe to be the essence of the Christian faith. Yes, there is a, a, a reality that when we follow after Jesus with our life, when we're Christians, that we should line our lives up with the way he says, but we believe that essence of Christianity is that we would do what God says, and that's not true. Right, chances are, what happens, something that has to do with external moral action. So if you answered no, it goes like this. My life is not pleasing to God. It's because I don't believe I'm doing enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't go to church enough. I don't pray enough. I don't give enough. I don't serve enough, whatever. Or my life isn't pleasing to God because I do all these other things that I know I'm not supposed to. You see how it's tied to this, this external moral action. We believe that our life being pleasing to God has to do with what we do for him. And this is the other way we get faith wrong. Despite the fact that the Bible says that being a Christian is something completely different altogether, at least the essence of it, we think that being a Christian means I need to follow the rules. Here's a list of things I do. Here's a list of things I don't do. Right? For most of us, even though we don't come out and say this, this is what it means to be a people of faith. It's the conversation that we've all had or overheard before where you go, uh, you know, you hear the conversation where you go, hey man, did you see Steve the other night? Did you see what he was doing? And then you go, yeah, I can't believe he was doing that. I thought he was a Christian. What are you saying? That being a Christian, and, and in its essence, is tied to what we do for God. Or you go, man, I can't believe he would do that. He would call himself a Christian. Maybe someone said that about you. That you had this transformation that takes place in your life, and you want to follow after Jesus, and you're doing the best you can, and then you drop the ball, and someone sees it, and they say about you, or you overhear them saying, or it comes back to you that they said, I can't believe you did that. I thought you were a Christian. See, at the essence of what we think it means to be a Christian is what we do for God, what we can accomplish for God, or what we don't do for God. This is what we think it means to be a people of faith. And the problem with this is that when we think that's what it means to walk by faith, we're getting faith wrong because the problem when you live that way, 
you're putting your faith in you. You're not putting your faith in God, you're putting your faith in you and your ability to perform and your ability to work hard enough or do good enough in order for you to earn the smile of God. And what is so debilitating about when we live like this is that the harder you try, the worse it gets. The harder you try to live that way, to do enough, to be enough, to, to earn the smile of God, the worse it gets. And so you're either really good at it or you think you are. And then you become so self-righteous and so arrogant that no one can stand to be around you. Or, like the majority of us, you're not good at it. You're terrible at it. And you live your life in this, on the treadmill of performance is what I call it, where you live your life in this constant cycle of, of feeling great about yourself when you're on top of your game and feeling like garbage as soon as you drop the ball and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth we go on the treadmill of performance. And the reason why you feel that way is because you put your faith in you. Look at verse 5 again in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he, commended, he was commended as having pleased God. So what we want to do there is go, Enoch walked with God so much so for 300 years. He was so godly, so righteous. He did all these things for God, and so God said, hey man, you're not going to die the normal way. I'm just going to take you up. That's what we want to do with that. But what the Bible just said is that he was commended by God. He got the smile of God because of what? His faith. Not because of his actions, but because of his faith in God. The Bible says that without faith, look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I need you to hear what the Bible didn't just say. Without perfect obedience, it is impossible to please God. The Bible didn't just say, without missing a quiet time, it is impossible to please God. The Bible didn't just say, without messing up, it is impossible to please God. It just said, without faith in Jesus, it is impossible to please God. Right? The way that we bring a smile to the face of God is not through our external moral action. It's not through our lining our lives up or doing these things or not doing those things. It comes from having faith to believe who he is and, and, and who he says he is. Look at verse 6. It kind of clarifies here what this faith is. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if we want to draw near to God, we must believe that he exists, the Bible says. A better translation of that is just trying to make sense of that for us. A better translation is we must believe that he is. Right? And if you're like, that didn't help at all. That's more confusing. Um, this is um, a reference back to Exodus 3. So Moses is, is encounters God in the burning bush, and, and he, he's talking to God, and God's saying, go back and tell him that I sent you, and he says to God, he's like, what should I say? Like, if I go back to, if I go back to the Israelites, and I say to, that the God of your father sent them, what do I say to them when they say, what is his name? And God looks at Moses, and he says, tell them I am. This is what he means, he says, he is. Tell them I am. Tell them I am sent you. The point is, God is Yahweh. Tell them that I am the God, the one who was and is and is to come. Tell them that I am the Lord your God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Tell them that I am the one who is the same today and yesterday and forever. This is what it means to believe that God is. Not only do you believe that he is real or that he exists, this is a lot more than just be, not being an atheist. It's believing in who he is, who he says he is, and believing what the Bible says he's done for us. Namely, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where it says, God made him, made Jesus to be sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. 
that we get righteousness because of the obedience of Christ. This is what it means to walk by faith. Not a faith in your ability to perform or your ability to do, but to put your trust in the reality that Christ's performance counts for you. So it means to walk by faith and how we get faith wrong. Your righteousness, your commendation doesn't come from how well you obey. It comes from the obedience of Jesus. That Jesus came and lived and died for our sin. And again, you got to hear me. I am not saying there isn't part of the Christian life that means, a really big part of the Christian life, that means that we should live our lives. We should do things that God says. Amen? We should not do things he says not to do because that is the way that life goes best. I am not saying it doesn't matter what you do. What I am saying is that the essence of Christianity, it is not obey. It is trust in the obedience of Christ on your behalf. This is what we're talking about here. This is one of the most staggering truths in all the world. And I may have said it here before, but I'm going to say it again and again and again. And I'm going to preach it to my last breath that, because I am convinced we don't believe it the way we should. We don't be, I don't believe this the way I should. This is the difference for us in living, like I said, in a cycle of the performance uh, treadmill. Constantly feeling good about ourselves. And as soon as we drop the ball, we, start to, we feel terrible. We feel like no one loves us. We feel like God doesn't love us. It's the difference between that, this truth, and living a life that God has given us in Christ. That God has offered us this, Christ, this, this life in Christ, one of forgiveness and one of ever-increasing joy, now and forevermore. This is the difference between what God has offered us in Jesus and then just feeling like nothing is working. And you want to throw in the towel, you want to give up. The truth of the gospel, this truth that because of the work of Christ on your behalf, God the Father is never disappointed in you. Never no matter what you did last night, no matter what you did last week. Again, not that that doesn't matter, it does, because at the essence of Christianity, it's faith not in you, but in Jesus. It's the truth of the gospel because of who he is and what he's done. He has forever secured for you the smile of God. Listen to this. He has purchased for you an answer to the question. When you ask yourself, does my life please God? At this very moment, we're going to read it here in a second. Uh, the Bible says, Hebrews says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So you ask yourself the question, does my life please God? He has scars in his hands right now from going to the cross for our sin. And he is saying yes. Does my life please God? Jesus says yes. What about my sin? Paid for. What about my anger? Paid for. What about the way I treat my wife? Paid for. Not that that doesn't matter, it does. But the way that you secure the smile of God is through the work of Christ on your behalf. This is what Hebrews 11 verse 6 means. When it says that we believe that he is real and that he rewards those who seek him, the point is that the reward that comes from God comes through faith. Not through our obedience. This is where we get faith wrong because the majority of our faith isn't in what he has done for us majority of our faith is in what we can do for him. That's what I meant this earlier this morning when I said that there is very little objective evidence that this is true in our lives because what happens when you mess up? You feel the need to run and hide from God because we don't believe the offer of grace stands for us. That what Christ has done, we don't believe fully that it counts for us. We feel the need to turn away, to cower like a dog. If we're going to be hit by God, he said, you have my smile because of my son. Come to me. You don't have to run from me. You can come to me. And the reality is we're doing this, this series this summer called Walk by Faith. And, and, the, and the reality is every single one of us has put our faith and hope in something. Every single one of us puts our hope, our trust, something, our security, we put it in something. And here's my question for you this morning. Is it Jesus? Is your hope in him? 
Is your security in him? Is your foundation in him? Is your life built on him and him alone? Do you believe that he is? Right? Do you believe that, that God rewards those who, who seek after him and that his reward is better, that the life of following after Jesus is better than anything that you could accomplish or manufacture on your own? And because of Christ, you forever have the smile of God. That God the Father is not disappointed in you because of Jesus. So maybe you do. Maybe you do believe that, right? Especially this Sunday morning. Like, it's easy to believe that. We just sang about it. It's easier to believe it when you have this guy yelling at you about it. Like, yeah, I believe it, but it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to downshift back into my own, to relying on my own performance and relying on my own obedience. So maybe you're there going, I believe it on Sunday, but it's easy to slip back into this mentality that's up to me to perform, that it's up to me in order to do enough and be enough to earn the smile of God. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you this way. Two things. One, you're not alone. Because I... I think that because the world we live in, the culture that says that, that you are what you do, not what someone else has done for you, and because of the lies of the enemy, it is so easy to feel like we are the only ones who struggle to believe that Christ's work counts for us. We feel alone. And so what I could do right now is I could say, hey, how many of you struggle, even though you believe that Christ's work counts for you, how many of you struggle to believe that when you disobey, God doesn't love you anymore? How many of you struggle? I could ask us to hold, raise up our hands, and it would be the majority of the room if we were honest. We would raise our hand, we could be a look around and go, hey, I'm not in this alone. I need you to hear this. You're not alone. You can quit pretending it is okay to not be okay. This is the, the declaration of the Christian. I am not good enough, but Christ counts for me. God sees me not as what I am, but who Jesus is. And that doesn't mean I'm insignificant, even though I feel small in that because I matter, because the God of the universe says, I've chosen to put my care on you. I am mindful of you. Right now, that means that you are on God's mind. He's thinking about you. So firstly, you're not alone. Secondly, and so many of you need to hear this, and we'll wrap up. God doesn't expect you to be perfect. So many of us need to hear that God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Some of you, the whole reason you're here this morning, the whole reason you show up to spaces like this, the whole reason you read your Bible, whatever, is because you're desperate to figure out, how do I please God? Tell me. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. We're just looking for things to add to our list, and now you have something else to add to your list. So please, don't leave here going, okay, now, new box, faith. But not faith in me and what I can do, faith in what Jesus has done. And I still need to work to be good and line my life up the way God says, because, because that's the way that life works best. And so I know so many of us are already, this is how our minds are working. You're putting together a list of how you're going to do better. You haven't even left yet. I'm, I'm talking about grace. The Holy Spirit of God right now is saying, believe the offer of grace that, that, that God the Father has offered to you, the life in Jesus, and you're already thinking about how you can jump back on the treadmill performance. So many of us do that. We live our lives this way. I know this is how your minds are working, and what you need to hear from God, what you need to see in the Bible this morning is that you don't have to be perfect because he is. We don't have to be perfect in order to earn the smile, the, the acceptance, the approval of God because he is. Hear this. You don't have to be the perfect mom. Do you feel how that sets you free, how the gospel sets us free? We're going to sing about it in a second. If I don't have to be the perfect mom, then I don't have to compare myself to all the moms around me and I'm free to actually love them. You don't have to be the perfect employee. You don't have to be the perfect student. You don't have to be the perfect son or whatever. You don't have to be the perfect Christian. There's freedom here in the gospel. What you need this morning, instead of something else to add to your list, is to see the real Jesus. 
This is where the author of Hebrews takes this argument. Flip over to verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, if you have your Bible. If not, it should be on the screen, yeah. It's where he takes this argument. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since there are all these men and women who've come before who have been commended by God, not because of what they've done, but because of their faith, since that, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, what I'm saying doesn't mean that our lives of obedience don't matter. It just means that we aren't accepted by God because of it. You hear this, lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let's run the race with endurance. Endurance races aren't easy. Following Jesus doesn't mean that your life's gonna go the way you want it to all the time. He says, since that, let's run with endurance the race set before us. And then verse two, this is what you need to hear. Looking to Jesus. Not looking to yourself, your ability to perform. Looking to Jesus, the one, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the same shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father at the throne of God right now. You know what that means? The tomb is empty. You know what that means? Your sin is paid for. Amen. This is the life that God has offered us, forgiveness and ever-increasing joy in Jesus, but still we reject this offer of grace because we want to be the ones who have it on our own. We want to be the ones who do it. I want to earn it. The Bible says you can't. Rest in that freedom that God has earned it for you, that he is the profounder and the perfecter of our faith. If he is in that spot, then we don't have to be. If Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, if God is on the throne, that means we don't have to be. That means he's king and we're not. This is what I meant earlier when I said that, that genuine faith doesn't make God small, it makes him big. It puts him on the throne of our lives because that's where he belongs. This is what genuine faith is. It allows us, if we're not on the throne, to rest in the reality that I don't have to be perfect. He's king, I'm not. I'm free to mess up. I'm free to do my best to follow after him, risking mistakes because I know that I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I'm free. It means that we know we can fix our eyes on him and not ourselves. We know that we can repent when we mess up. Again, you don't have to pretend that you're okay. You don't have to pretend that you got it all together. You don't have to pretend that you don't need Jesus. The life, the banner over the life of the Christian is I am not enough. He is, and still God cares about me. We know that despite our imperfections, we have not lost the smile of God because I'm not looking to myself, but rather I'm looking to Jesus and by God's grace, church. And let's walk in a faith like this. A faith that doesn't make God small, but that puts him on the throne of our lives. A faith that says he loves me, despite the fact that I don't deserve that from him. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful this morning for the truth of the gospel. I mean, it's so hard to believe. It runs so counter-contrary, so contrary to the world we live in that says we are what we do. We are what we make of ourselves. Thank you, God, that you don't judge us based on what we bring to the table, but we are judged by what Christ has brought for us. Help us, Father, to believe that. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you move us down the line, away from our doubts, and into a more holistic trust of you? Would you help us even, many of us, just to be able to be honest about the, way, the places we're weak? Help us to quit pretending. To be honest about the places where we drop the ball and trust that you're the one who's holding it up. And when we ask ourselves the question, does my life please God, would we not hesitate to look to Jesus? 
not to ourselves and what we've done, but to him who is seated at the right hand of the Father saying to us, yes. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.